welcome to The Legendary Tales. I am one of your hosts, Isadora martin Day. Hi, I'm Adam, your other host. And this is the podcast where you tell, where we, you tell us, where we tell you about weird legendary things, people, events, and in today's case, disappearances and deaths. Yeah, that is what we're doing today. So we didn't really know what we were going to do at the end of last week. We never do. No, we kind of pretend like we're going to do. Yeah, I don't know why we why we bother doing that, and people are going to call us on it at some point. Yeah, but until that point, continue, we just continue pretend like it. we know what we're going to do. Then, when we find something more interesting, we do that instead. Yeah, that's usually how it how it goes. Okay, so I think Adam's up first this week. Yeah, so this week I did some research on Amelia Earhart and her legendary disappearance. Ooh, women power. Yeah, I've got I've got badass history babe here written with the double underlines. Um, shameless plug, I guess. For our new podcast that I'm trying to get ready to do. Are you in our yeah, so if you want to listen to something similar to this, but with a bit of a female empowerment spin, um, are you having Sarah do that podcast with you? No, it's just gonna be me. Yeah, you could join join as a door on on her new podcast, Badass His Herstory Babes. Badass babes in Herstory. That's the one. All right, oh. so this will be a little bit of a, of a flavor. both From both of us, actually. Yeah. Um, for uh, what to expect on that podcast. So this is just a shameless plug for the other podcast that you're doing. Do it. All right. And uh, I will steal all your information <laughs> and do one on her at some point. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Amelia Earhart's history in the field of aviation. She was a, a very great female pioneer, pushing the boundaries and all that. And just talk a little bit about what made her famous, her rise to fame, and then the the disastrous final flight of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. I didn't even realize there was someone else on the plane with yeah, her. Yeah, a navigator, because she wasn't a great navigator. She was just a good pilot. <laughs> okay. Those are two different things. Okay. Well, I've already learned something new. <laughs> so along with being a pioneering female aviator, uh, she, well, I'll go into that stuff. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I haven't spoken to anybody today, so this is this no, is first words. I will words point of the out day. it's four o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> and this is the first words Adam I'm said. Just getting out of bed. So, as well as being a pioneering female aviator, she was also an author. She wrote two books in her lifetimes. The first being Twenty Hours and Forty Minutes, detailing her flight as the first female to travel the Atlantic, the transatlantic flight that she did. And then she also wrote a book called The Fun of It, which was more of a memoir and an essay on women in aviation. So. Cool. No matter what she was doing, she was saying like, hey, look, women can do this too. So very cool of her. Uh, she was also an editor at Cosmopolitan, which is a little bit of a, a, of, of a swing. I like it. Um, but for, and for her entire life, she was an, a journalist focused on, on the field of aviation, okay. obviously. She was also a visiting faculty member at Purdue University in the aeronautical engineering department uh, and a career counselor to female students at Purdue as well. So. Very, very cool. Uh, it's amazing she, she had any time. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, so like she didn't spend all of her time flying, obviously. You don't, you can't really sustain that as a yeah. career. <laughs> um, I think there's a whole group of pilots out there that might say that you but she sustain wasn't a, flying But she was never a, a commercial pilot. Yeah. She was only ever like, I'm going to just do crazy stuff in airplanes, cool. which is awesome. Equally awesome. Yes. Yeah, sorry, any pilots who listen to the podcast. Your jobs your are career. Your jobs are legitimate. Uh, she was known as the queen of the air, her post her transatlantic flight, which is a, a good moniker for her, I think. Um, her rise to fame started in 1928. Uh, she was a passenger on the first 
transatlantic flight, mm -hmm. not as a pilot, simply as a passenger. So the way that the story goes, or the way that history goes, there was another female pilot whose name was Amy Phipps Guest, who was inspired by Charles Lindbergh yep. uh, to, do the, to do the flight. Basically, to do a you gotta come up flight. with an excuse to Limbaugh's baby yeah. on another flight. <laughs> yeah, but she decided it was too dangerous for her, and so she would act as a sponsor. Okay. And so she, Amy Phipps Guest says, "Hey, I've I've been hearing about you doing some some, some flight stuff. You're a, a nice young lady. Would you like to join the, the crew the for this flight?" She said, and they basically gave her the responsibility of of keeping the the. <laughs> they gave her the responsibility of keeping the log. So she was basically just an air secretary, okay. which is not great because she was at this point a relatively accomplished pilot. Okay. Yeah. So on the June 17th, 1928, the airplane friendship left uh, the airport in Newfoundland and then landed in South Wales in 20 hours and 40 minutes okay. being the title of her first book. But she was just like, yeah, a so there's a, a, a quote here. Stoltz did all the flying. I was just baggage. She said she felt like a sack of potatoes. Oh, okay. So not nearly as empowering as later trips would be. But yeah. this inspired her to do the first solo transatlantic flight, be the okay. first woman to do this. But after she landed, so this is more of her rise to fame, uh, she was received as folk hero. They all were. The, the whole crew was. Oh, this, okay. was this was amazing. Yeah. Uh, President Coolidge. Uh, met with all of them. There were parades and what? What's that bit of the this, in New York City? It's called like Memorial Alley or so. It's just like okay. where all of the the like parades happen when people come back from war or things. Yeah. So so after that, she decided to partake in some more endeavors. Uh, she became the first woman to fly across North America. She placed third in the heavy planes division of the Santa Monica to Cleveland Women's Air Derby, which is exactly what it sounds okay. like. She basically you fly from Santa Monica to Cleveland with various stopping points and the kind of plane she was flying was classed heavy. So she placed third in that. And 19. Was that in a com? I can't. It's better than placing last. How do you know that there were more than three people? There were five people. Actually, there were only four because <laughs> one of her friend's planes stopped working. Okay. <laughs> the point is that she's like very involved in this. Okay. And, and the, the plane she was flying was severely outdated by like. By several, she she's very partial to one particular model of plane, okay, and would only fly that plane in these sort of competitions, regardless of whether or not it could keep up. So the fact okay. that she was a good enough pilot to maintain this, anyway, in the 1930s, she was a representative of the National Aeronautic Association, and she was like, "Hey, we have records for men doing these." crazy air feats. We should have them for women as well. Okay. So she helped establish women's records That's for cool. aeronautical travel and speed records and stuff like that. She set the altitude record in an airplane at okay. 18,415 feet. For a woman or generally? I think it was generally. That's awesome. And she made, what it says is that she made flying feel accessible. Okay. That it was no longer just for daredevils or Superman. Yeah. Um, and then she was also the president of an organization called the 99s, which was a female flying organization. And there was a rally race, an air, a flying rally race called the Bendix Trophy Race. And they banned women from participating, and they had asked her to fly someone out to to open the race, and she refused. <laughs> okay. So she was like, they no. They asked a woman to fly to the race where they wouldn't let women yes. in. And she was like, I'm not doing that. That's she had, she, she had a very similar reaction to what you just had, <laughs> and rightfully so. So this all sort of leads to... No, so now I'm going to go a little bit more into detail. So for her transatlantic solo flight in 1932, 
on May 20th, she flew from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland to Paris because she's want, wanting to emulate Lindenberg's flight mm -hmm. to the destination. But due to poor weather or some ice and horrible winds, she was forced to complete her flight in Derry, Northern Ireland, which is much farther north yes. <laughs> than Paris is. Um, but she like landed in the in, in someone's field and a farmhand came up to her and said, oh, have you flown very far? And she said, from America. Wow. Which is pretty cool, I think. Yeah. Uh, this flight earned her the, distingu the distinguished flying cross from Congress. Cool. The French government gave her the cross of the Knight of the Legion of Honor, which sounds pretty prestigious. I don't know if it's just a, if it's anything, but. I don't have one. It's a lot of words. <laughs> and neither of us have one. The National Geographic Society just gave her a gold medal for just a cool thing that she did. You can get those from the National Geographic Society. I guess so. Yeah. Oh, that's I, now become a new, there was, new goal in my life. There was probably another word that I missed there while I was taking my notes, but I doubt it. <laughs> and then at this point, she became friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, another great pioneer for for women. She's they, awesome. Yeah, for women's rights and women's suffrage and all that stuff. So just like cool lady with cool lady friends. She's awesome. I like her. She had other solo flights. She was the first female to fly from Hawaii to Oakland, which mm -hmm. doesn't seem very far, but setting records is important. Okay. Uh, it is far though. Like, yeah. How long would that flight be? I don't know, but from flying and also by yourself. Yeah, no, that's pretty. Herself. That's pretty. California. I would Hawaii never. Is pretty... I would never do. I'm not saying it's like not far, okay. but like it seems California to Hawaii. Is it pretty seems far. less far than North America. The width of North America. I think it's. Is it might is it, be about the same. Really? Okay. Yeah. I always like my geography is awful. So I always assume that like California is here and then Hawaii is just like. Put it this way. I know when we lived in LA and we looked going to California, mm -hmm. it was still six or seven hour flight. Okay. Okay. So yeah, still pretty yeah, far. So that's, still how, pretty far. that's how long it took for her to do the North America okay. flight, basically, I think. Uh, LA to Mexico City, Mexico City to New York. Um, and then she per she participated in some other races cool. as well. Oh, and she set seven speed and distance records in airplanes as well, which is pretty neat. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't, I couldn't find which speed and distance records, but <laughs> seven's a lot. And so this sort of, all of this, all of her experience in aviation leads her to start planning for what would become her final flight. Okay. So with fun- She was obviously very famous at this point. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like a, she was doing promotional uh, like ads because she was mm -hmm. working for Cosmopolitan. So as well okay. as being an editor there, she was having, there were ads of her- she was like promoting Lucky Strikes because smoking was still like okay, a cool, cool thing, but she was a woman. So being in an advertisement for a cigarette, not great. So that sort of tarnished her image a little okay. bit. But she was working with like big, massive companies. Because I kind of never really knew, I guess, whether most of her legend was because she never made it home on her last flight. So that's or was she already pretty legendary yeah, before so she even that's, got there? That's sort of like the big thing, right? Because it's how could a pilot this good? Okay. Like what, like how could this possibly happen? Okay. But like it's, it's air travel. Yeah. Anything can happen. So at this point, uh, I think it was 1938, I believe, or 1937. We're coming up on like the 93 year anniversary. Okay. Of her like July 2nd oh. was when she went missing. So in a few, like the 29th today mm -hmm. was the day that she took off on her final, on her final flight. 93 which is, years ago. Yeah, or yeah, ninety three or ninety two years ago. Wow, which is pretty nuts. Yeah. Uh, I just realized that today while I was finishing up my That's research. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um. So with funding from Purdue University, because at this point she was a visiting associate, and with a custom Lockhead Electra ten E that she had built because she was having custom planes built for oh, her. Is that a type of airplane? By, by, by airplane <laughs> okay. companies. 
uh, she decided to fly the the circumference of the Earth. It's like a twenty nine thousand mile journey, basically following the equator. So at the okay. at the widest point of the Earth. That seems like a hell of a jump from like I flew across the Atlantic or I flew across North America. Yeah. Yeah, what would have been the first completed trans-worldwide flight. I I'm believe. assuming stopping in various mm. places. She stopped a lot. Like okay. it, it, it took like a few weeks. Okay. Cuz the plane was still quite small. Okay. But yeah, massive, absolutely massive. Okay. But they started running into problems almost immediately. Mm-hmm. The first being with the navigator that they had at the time. His name was Captain Henry Manning. And it was herself, so it was Amelia Earhart, yep. Fred Noonan, a man named Mance, who I don't think ended up being part of the crew, but was part of the like planning. Okay. And then Henry Manning, and they were all sort of planning this thing together. Yeah. So they were out doing some test flights, and during the test flight, uh, Manning, the navigator, performed a flight fix mid-flight, sort of a navigational term. Right. And it put them in the wrong state. Okay. And everyone was like freaked out. Like, obviously, right? Yeah, because that's kind of why you have a navigator right. so you end up in the right, right. state. But there, there is, like, some people were like, well, he did, he was only off by, like, they were flying between state lines. So is it that weird that he would, that, like, a small mistake would put them in the wrong state? Like, they were, like, straddling yeah. a state. So, like, it's, some people were like, well, why would you even bother at that point? There wasn't any, like, distance. It wasn't like, oh, he was four miles off. First. No. It's like, well, he was 400 so miles even off. even in flight. Like it does have to be very specific, but it looks like as long as you're within like 10 to 20 miles, you're considered to be pretty accurate. Okay. So they put him on a night flight test again, and he was 20 miles off position and they were like, okay, we have to get a new navigator. Sounds yeah. Like a second, a second navigator. They basically wanted a backup. Yes. So they found Fred Noonan, uh, who was an ex who was experienced in Marine and flight navigation. And he would navigate the difficult section from Hawaii to Howland Island. And that was the fi- like the final stretch, basically, before they went back to California. I'm surprised that they bothered taking the poor navigator along with so them. So he was still very skilled. There, there were a lot of things that we get into, uh, we'll get into a little okay. bit later, that they could have very much benefited from had he still been on the flight. Oh, uh, okay. And he was going to be on the flight because uh, like this, this whole thing is ourselves. what's riddled with problems. Okay. So March 17th, 1937, they have their first attempt. They are going to fly from Oakland to Honolulu. So they're going to go the Western route. They're going to go. Yeah. Um, That way. Yeah. They're going to go from Oakland. So that is West. Yeah. Immediately have mechanical problems, um, cause three days of delay in Hawaii. And on the 20th, while they're attempting to take off, the plane was damaged during an uncontrolled ground loop. What that means is as the plane is, you imagine a plane looking like that. One of your leading wings is pushed down, and the other obviously goes up yeah. as the counterweight. And yeah. it spins the plane out of control, and it's completely destroyed their landing gear. Okay. And the plane was, like, shipped back off to the States to be worked on. Okay. Uh, at this point, Manning decides that he's not going to—he's like, I'm not doing this. He's like, I'm not messing around with this anymore. Like, I took a leave off of work to do this flight. It's already been so heavily delayed, and now I'm terrified that I'm going to die in a plane crash, so I'm done. Okay. So. Thus assuring his long, happy life, I hope. <laughs> yes. Um, I didn't go any more into him because he stopped being interesting as soon as he quit being a part of her crew. But we got to assume for his future wife, children. It was probably. It was a, a great decision. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And he's an interesting man now. Yes. It was. <laughs> so <laughs> some time passes and a few months pass, pass actually. Uh, and they plan their second attempt. 
going from west or going eastward this time. So they're going to okay. go the other London. Way, the opposite way, <laughs> obviously. London based. Uh, because they want to avoid weather at this point. Um, okay. It's getting too warm, I think, in the Pacific it's, or something. Okay. That was that was the excuse they cited was weather not mm-hmm. great going the other way. So they would start in Miami, actually. Okay. And then. Oh, because he and, said they're following the equator. Yeah. And then fly from there. Okay. Uh, so you have Noonan and Earhart. At this point, it should be noted that neither of them were skilled radio operators. Radio radio is kind of complicated. Okay. And it and it is cited as one of the biggest problems that they face okay. in this flight. So yeah, June tw- by June 29th, 1937, which is 92 years ago today, 93 yep. years ago today, they were 22,000 miles into their trip. So they're cool. nearly finished. Wow. They're- That's quite Okay. It's, I mean, still very accomplished flight. Yeah, they're in Ley, New Guinea. Okay, which is an island off the coast of Australia, or is it part of Australia? I think New Guinea is part of the continent, but different. It's its own country. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, but it is the continent of Australia. I would have thought. So. Okay. And they're yeah. So there's seven thousand miles left. They're like in the home stretch, and all they have to do is fly over the Pacific and get home. Mm-hmm. So that's July second, nineteen thirty-seven. They have a twelve a.m. takeoff from the Ley airfield. Carrying 900 gallons of fuel, which is 250 gallons less than the max capacity for fuel on that aircraft. The reason they carry less is because that amount of fuel gets them the farthest for the weight. Okay. So it it offers them 40% more range okay. on the distance. Basically, I some engineer told them you could make it with this amount of fuel and still be safe. Okay. Because you want to carry as little as possible. Yeah. While, while traveling as achieving your goal yeah, while, tra- while achieving yeah. your distance but like they're not racing anybody no but i mean 40 percent range is is a pretty sizable like yeah. like 40 40 percent of seven thousand is yeah two thousand more like it, anyway okay at 3 p.m so 15 hours later uh Earhart reports that they're at flying at ten thousand feet and due to air cover they're going to have to lower themselves okay and that's over the radio to there was a u.s coast guard okay um the i think it's called the itscara i believe is what it's called it was some clipper ship okay not clipper cutter because the clipper is an old right and so by 5 p.m two hours later they're seven seventy five hundred feet so they're just dropping and dropping because they're trying to get below the clouds and trying to find this island trying to find howland island is that for navigation purposes or they're going to land there? They were going to land there. That's okay. what I think that was their final um, like f- stopping point before they flew into California. Okay. Uh, and their last report was made near the Nukuman Islands, uh, 800 miles into their flight. Okay. So that was the last that. And that, that was that they're dropping down to avoid I bo- cloud yeah. coverage. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so they never sent like an SOS or a... No, but there's there's a few strange things that happen. Okay. Um, but first, we're going to talk a bit about the radio equipment. Because okay. I did cite that as being a problem. Yeah. Um, They're inexperienced. And so there's a few, thing, a few things. I, the whole article went into like the kilohertz of how radios communicate. I'm not going to go into that because it made my brain hurt. Okay. Um, basically, what happened I don't was... I want my brain to hurt, so no. skip over it. Basically, so Earhart's plane never made radio con- like specific radio contact with the Coast Guard. Okay. They just were managing to scan the frequencies and managed to pick up her signal. Okay. So that was one of the first issues. Okay. So this is the the ship I was talking about, the USCG Itscara. Okay. It's a little bit relevant. There's not a lot of clear documentation about what kind of radio equipment she had on her airplane. Uh, it was heavily modified, this this 
plane. Because it was built custom. Yeah. And so it's unclear whether it had the normal like bog standard radio equipment. If it had, she would have been able to dial in a frequency and find the ship. So they think there might have been some modified like lighter radio equipment. Um, It's suggested that some of the aerials were removed in order to decrease weight on the plane. And so she wouldn't have been able to find the proper frequencies anyway. So they're the whole time they're struggling to communicate with anyone who's supposed to help them land this plane. The plane also wasn't outfitted with a beat frequency oscillator. Sure. A lot of big words that basically (laughs) says it basically detects constant frequency. So like Morse code. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Another problem with that, though, is that Earhart and Noonan couldn't communicate via Morse code. They didn't know it. Guess who could? The one they'd left behind. The one one that had said. The one who said, I'm done with this. He said, I don't want to die. Yeah. So that just a lot of. God, he made a good call. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there were reports of receivers being removed in order to save weight and a malfunction of their radio detect- detection frequency equipment. So they didn't even necessarily have the equipment to let them know that frequencies were coming to them. Okay. So that's like, that's, that's a lot of problem. A lot of guff, basically, that to say that their radio equipment wasn't up to par. They couldn't have called for help. Not really. No. Okay. Um, not directly or, okay. or clearly enough. So this sort of leads into some theories about her disappearance, because obviously things, something like this happens to someone as amazing and groundbreaking. Yeah, Legendary yeah. is this. There are going to be a lot of discussions. Yeah. I found an article, which I will now cite. Yay. The top three theories for Amelia Earhart's disappearance written by Michael Greshko. So thank you, Michael. Yay, so exciting. He wrote it 13 years ago, I think. Or th- Yay, well, not really. Anything's <laughs> changed. No, no. So the first, and this is the official United States position. U.S. government's official position is an open air, open ocean crash, which is exactly what it sounds like. They assume that they ran out of fuel, crashed the plane, and it sank to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Even though they had 40% extra fuel. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, incomplete radio transmissions from the Itasca from, from Earhart claiming to be near the island but unable to see it and running low on fuel. Okay. So I think that, I think that this stretch was – like as far of the limit that you could push this plane to. Mm-hmm. There are some reports of other pro- professional pilots in the modern day who are very now very well versed with this plane, yeah. as I'm sure she was as well. I'm not saying she wouldn't have known yeah. how to fly it. She may have. They may have just made one miscalculation on how much fuel they needed. But they're saying we knew how far we could push this thing for fuel. This like was like yeah. there's because there's some other theories we'll get into. Okay. Uh. So theory number one. Yes, is that it's an open open sea crash. Straight up, ran out of fuel, went to the yeah. ocean. And so there was a, an organization called Nauticos that went on a deep sea search uh, over the months of March and April 2002. They searched 630 square miles of the ocean mm-hmm. and didn't really find anything. And then another institute went out in 2009. The Weight Institute for Discovery did another search and didn't turn up anything. It is weird to me that with all the scientific knowledge that we have. But the Pacific is massive. I mean, as we established yeah. last week on our ocean stuff. Yeah, I found that statistic again. It came up in an article. It okay. was like 5% of our ocean is discovered. It's going to be tough to find anything that you're looking yeah. for. Especially in 2002, it's 75 years after her, or 65 years after her crash, Things on the bottom of the ocean move. Yeah. So the second theory, and this, there's a lot of credence to this. This isn't totally insane. Is the Nikumaro castaway, which is the island that they would that they could have been near. Yeah. While the plane started to go down. 
I think I've heard this one. So this, one. this one has quite a bit of credence, a lot of interesting evidence to support the theory. Okay. So the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGHAR. Catchy. Yeah, very. Rolls right off the tongue. Believe that the plane performed an emergency landing on Nikamaru Island, 350 miles away from the island that they were meant to land on. Okay. This is due to a, a line of transcript from a radio transmission that the Coast Guard received from mm -hmm. Earhart's plane before it stopped getting transmissions. And she said, we are on line 157337. Okay. Basically what that means is she was on a, a line bisecting Howland Island, going northwest to southwest. Mm -hmm. And if she had... Coming from the northwest, I believe, it was just open ocean behind her. But if she had flown over Howland and had continued and southwest, the, the other island would have been in her line of flight. Okay. And that was the, the last confirmed transmission from, okay. from her plane. After that, the operators received 120 messages over the course of 10 days, and 57 could have been from her. So I'm a bit, I'm a bit confused because I couldn't really find... Well, I'm, I'm assuming that firstly, the other like 70 transmissions were just from other ships. Yeah. And I, I'm a bit confused as well. If they had received 57, that could have been from her. Why there wasn't? Because I didn't see that there was like an immediate search party sent, sent, been, that had been sent out. And this could be a critical piece of information that I might be There's missing. There's not many islands in that area, mm, I assume. I don't know. So but but this, one, not... this one's also like not, gig not a gigantic mm -hmm. island. But like if you know what that turn the what the one five seven three three seven line is which they would have because they would have had those numbers yeah and you've got an american hero missing you'd think that people would have gone out earlier to, to and yeah when they, did they start going out do you know it was uh, so they were she was declared missing on july 2nd 1937 and she so wasn't and she wasn't declared dead until january 5th and so and her husband like sent out People, the Coast Guard was had people going out. Like okay. private coalitions were. Raising. Did they? Is there evidence that anyone touched base on this island? Yes, a lot. Okay. Very much, lots, like okay. like like her or people who went to find her. People who went to find her. Not that I could find. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so what was interesting about this was, all right. So as well as the island being in her flight path, mm -hmm. um, and if these if these transmissions were from her. She would have had to have landed at low tide. Okay. Because the island isn't gigantic and it doesn't have a lot of space for landing unless the tide recedes enough. You could land a plane on the sandbar, I guess you would call it. Okay. And while she was flying, the island would have been experiencing a low tide. Okay. So it's theorized that she landed the plane on low tide, but then the high tide came in and destroyed the plane and dragged it mm -hmm. out to sea. So this number doesn't make any sense. At some point afterward, after her disappearance, a British colonizing party uh, f comes to the island. Okay. And they take a picture, and there's a blurry image in the picture that appears to be a plane's landing gear. Okay. Which is, you know, the upright with the tire attached yeah. to it. They find, they, they also find it, and they're like, what is this thing? I just don't understand how no one searched this island in the months close to disappearance. I don't okay. know. I, like, I, like I said, I think the island is tiny. Um, okay. No, it is strange. No, like it is very strange, especially yeah. since it's only what's well, three hundred and fifty miles. So it might just not have been a big enough circle okay. that they gave around, around Howland. Yeah, maybe because three hundred fifty miles is a is a substantial yes. distance. Yeah, okay. So it's a possible landing gear, and the British colonizers also found an overnight biovac. 
on on the island. I'm not sure what that is. No, it's part of an airplane. I'm I assuming. was going to pretend that I knew what that was. <laughs> a year later, they went back. The same party. Yeah. Okay. And found more airplane parts. Did they go back because they realized they might have found something to do with their no. heart, or were they just pulled them were, back? They were just going back to continue with the colonizing. Is this island pretty? Was it worth colonizing? I don't. It doesn't look like it. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's the British. Oh, yeah, we do that, don't we? <laughs> and then in 1940, the col the colonizing associate, or he had some title to do with the colonizing, found 13 bones buried near a campfire and two shoes, one a man and one a woman's. Buried? Yeah. Yep. Like they'd been buried by a person or like? I, but it sounds like they were put there intentionally. Okay, not like they'd been buried no. by the sea. Because if they had been, the campfire also would have been buried. Okay. I assume. Yeah. They also found a box that, Used to hold a sextant, which is a navigational tool. Okay, I know. Yeah, I'm sure. Literally, I'm, I know what that is. Okay. <laughs> the bones were shipped to Fiji. Okay. And lost, because that's how that works. Okay. But the measurements that were taken beforehand have been examined by this organ Tighar, this organization, and they could have belonged to someone of Amelia Earhart's build. Because the skull was, I think, at the moment of discovery, they were like, oh, this is a, this is a lady's skull. Okay, all right. So that's three years. That's three years after she goes missing, and then there were also several campfires and remains of animals found, like in a, a nearby area. Uh, mm -hmm. Shellfish, shells, um, fish skeletons, and someone was like, "Oh, what? Well, it could have been Pacific Islanders, but the heads were were weren't eaten." And that's a very Western thing is to not eat the fish heads. Okay, so very much could have been them them trying to yeah. survive. So that's that's basically that conspiracy. Cool. There's a lot of evidence there. Yeah. No, see. that's quite a lot. Yeah. Well, they have. Have they gone back since? Yes, they have gone okay. back to look for the. Because there must be more than thirteen bones, and yeah, so they haven't. They have been doing digs. I didn't okay. really find anything too conclusive. Uh -huh. Um, and they have gone and done underwater searches and dives and stuff. And the way that that island is constructed, and this is probably how most islands are constructed, because they're basically just mountains in the ocean. Is it's like tiered. Yeah. And so as the tide and stuff moves, it sort of collects in a channel and then drags all the debris down to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Um, and they found like bits that could have been a plane crash, um, okay. but they haven't found Conclusive anything evidence. massive. Yeah. And with the bones still being missing, can't really do d any DNA testing. No, but they only found 13 bones yeah. out of a hundreds of yeah, people have in very very many but like also i don't i don't know if there were any wild animals living on the it's possible that yeah. they were dug up okay. or whatever and they, yeah but yeah also two people two people should have been two skeletons but maybe she cast away or maybe he cast away after she died and yep. they died in the ocean somewhere okay the third theory and this is the like crazy conspiracy theory I like theory, it which is like the funnest one yeah the other two are just kind of devastating and sad yeah this is the marshall islands conspiracy okay so this conspiracy is so this conspiracy has under the assumption that Earhart and Noonan weren't just pilots. They were U.S. spies. I thought you were going to say lovers. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> she was married to a man with polio. Like, I don't know how that justifies <laughs> or de-justifies my lover's comment. No, so this conspiracy assumes that they were either spies or were forced to land on Marshall Island, which at the time was Jap under Japanese control. Okay. 1930s, late 1930s, not a great time to be an American landing on a Japanese-controlled island. And so there are two assumptions after this, is that they were either killed okay. or taken prisoner. Okay. 
So if they're killed, they're killed. And yeah. that's that they died in, in yeah. Marshall. And, and the Japanese government says they have no evidence of them ever being on the okay. island, which if they had landed there, they wouldn't anyway. No, but also, I mean, relations with Japan aren't bad anymore, so. No, but like if they hadn't had those reports. Oh, yeah. Like in the first place, yeah, they yeah. wouldn't have the reports now. Yeah. So they're either killed or they are retrieved by the United States government. And this is where it gets a bit weird because I, I haven't, because like your comment, they could have been lovers. Like I didn't find anything like salacious. Yeah. And if the U.S. government had found them and retrieved them, they would have come back under their names. Yeah. This asserts that they came back, but then changed their names. So I was trying to, okay, so on the bigger side of conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. is there like a conspiracy theory that the U.S. government would want them gone in any sort? Because No. Okay. Because all of this sounds quite like... Not that I could find. The U.S. government ship was the last ship to have radio contact with them. Yeah. Then there was only like a dozen islands in the area, and if they were on this one, they didn't get found. Yeah. Not that I could find. Not that yeah, I could find it. That was just my deep dog brain. They mostly posit that like they were either spies or they landed there and then the U.S. used us as an opportunity to retrieve them and then drop like a splinter cell in to do some sneaky recon on the Japanese during World and War And then II. they came back under assumed names yeah. and went into like witness protection? No, because so this is where the theory sort of okay. falls apart is she supposedly came back as like a middle class banker and then died in New Jersey. But like she's a she's not like a. It's there was not, no reason for her to go vanish. No, like because normally when you go under witness protection, it's a completely different identity. You're not a prestigious or even like moderately well-known person. Yeah. They drop you somewhere where no one has ever yeah. heard of you ever. And then this woman also like filed a lawsuit. Someone wrote a book called Amelia Earhart, like not dead. And and this woman, oh, and named somebody. Yeah, and this woman sued the author for one point five million dollars in damages. And did she win? Yes. Yeah. And then the books were pulled off of out of publication and stuff. And oh, okay. So probably not her. No, no. Um, but it's an interesting theory nonetheless. Uh some of the the posited evidence is a photo recently, not recently, but in the last like decade, surfaced from the National Archives of a, a dock on Marshall Island. Um, and two people in the photo look very similar to it's the back of a woman's head with very short hair, okay, wearing trousers. I know that doesn't sound like crazy evidence, but Amelia Earhart was very well known for not. No, what, I do believe that you can kind of tell the identity you, of somebody yeah. from them behind. Yeah. And then there's a, a man with, and Fred Noonan had a very distinct hairline. Okay. Like, I'm going like to see a that. picture. Okay. That's a very distinct yeah, hairline. Yeah, that is a very distinct hairline. He's got very receding temples, but yes. quite a lush set of hair otherwise. Yeah. Wow. Well, did I? Oh, wait, no, I didn't. All yeah. right. Am I going to see the picture of them on the dock? Yep. Okay. It, like, remember, this picture was taken in the 30s, okay. so it's not the greatest quality, okay. but I think that it's kind of... At this point, they've got no reason to hide that they were spies. I do totally believe, I mean, there's evidence that the U.S. were putting... Spies in Japan. Spies in Japan and spies everywhere, and they were putting spies in America, and everyone was blending pretty well. Yeah. But Amelia Earhart wouldn't be a blendy kind of person because I'm assuming even Japan, a woman landing in a plane is probably. So that's a weird thing, too, is so a lot of the people who, again, it's not loading. Okay. I'll just show you once the podcast is over and we can put it on the Instagram and in the show notes. Whenever we do that. But they do look fairly similar. Okay. Yeah. It's like you said, especially in Japan, a woman flying an airplane, they're like, oh, this is kind of weird. Everyone. So there are. People living on the island now, and this is part of the evidence yeah. that these theorists say this is proving that she was actually oh, on this okay. island, is there are ants, not ancestors, offspring of yeah. the people who were on the island at the time who say, we remember someone who we thought was a man landing an airplane, and then people saying, no, that's a lady, 
That's a lady, and everyone being very confused about it. So there's a lot of people who say my parents saw her, my grandparents uh, well, saw that, her. I don't. I actually first hand evidence that kind of stuff. First hand evidence is is the yeah. most important kind of evidence. Yeah, I don't discount that. There's stuff also at all. a a ship in the background of the of the photo that's carrying like an, a 38 foot barge, and that's the same, just big enough to carry the length of her ship. Her uh, uh, plane. Her plane. That's what I meant. Her air. <laughs> her airship. The two yellow circles are Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart. Okay, in that little break that I will cut, you guys missed Adam saying bloody hell. <laughs> He's so British now. Okay. Oh, God. And so it's such a grainy photo because it's the uh-huh. 1930s. But it, it, but it did arise from the... And I don't know if the National Archives, which sounds like a very prestigious organization, I'm not sure if that's just a thing where all archived photos from the United States government go. Yeah. But the theorists are saying that this gives the theory some credence is that this was okay. a government organization that did have this photograph but that that hairstyle wasn't super popular in the 1937s i don't think yeah but like again like you I see, mean it's you so, see a quarter of a man's head and a lady with yeah, short hair it's so blurry you can't see anything right so okay. yeah the question is is this Earhart and noonan this man has a very distinct hairline including mm-hmm. the the withdrawn temples yeah a woman in trousers with very short hair I mean, it is it she the person in this thing of it does look like a young boy or a woman. Yes. Um, and they do have short hair. Yeah. The receding temple hairline is more. Yeah, but it's only like you only see like half of his face. I mean, that's harder to. Yeah. Yeah. And then the again that the ship is carrying a barge large enough for. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of people are saying like, and then so this is where those pilots come in. They're saying, I'm very experienced with this. Yeah. type of aircraft marshall island is wait if she was running out of fuel mm-hmm. as close to her destination as she was there's no way she could have made it to marshall island even if the wind was like blowing at her back the entire time and if she had to crash land in the ocean which she probably would have had to it never would have floated that far okay but that also assumes that her goal wasn't marshall island exactly so people are saying well maybe she just this was just a, a front Right. In which case, she could have had more fuel on board, and yeah, and it could have just this. Once you start unraveling yeah. it, yeah, and so that—that's what I think is really interesting is that there's also a lot of the first-hand evidence. Well, not what's well, now second-hand evidence, but people saying okay that grandparents and parents did see a remember woman, a woman yeah, driving landing a plane, a plane on a, an island which is again very small. It's one of these tiny Pacific islands. Out of interest, what would be the point in putting her on Marshall Island? Was it politically significant? No, it would have just been. So, I th- so it's an outpost of. It would have been one of the outpost islands in Japan. It would have been like one of their. I think it was a, had a military base on it, maybe or something. It just doesn't seem like a subtle way to gather information. No, but they. But the assumption was that she would go. So she was a spy, but she mm-hmm. would be playing herself. She would land there and say, "Oh, we accidentally. We had to do an emergency landing on your island. We're really sorry." Yeah, and then the government would, if Negotiate. she was, if she was captured or whatever would send people to pick her up and then they would leave someone on someone else on the island to gather information. Okay. Okay. Which I which I think is fun. Yeah, it's a good, I like it as a theory. Yeah, I do it's too. It's very like It sounds like a, it could be a movie. Yeah, it's very It's very much it could be a plot to a movie. Cinematic. Mhm. But I'm I'm leaning more toward they had That's, to crash on an island. Which and, is pretty awful. Yeah, I mean American legend like like I like, kind of hope they crashed into the ocean. I kind of hope that they were spies. <laughs> but I hope she didn't pretend to be a lady from New Jersey. I was going to say, I kind of hope she's a bank teller in New Jersey. <laughs> um, what a horrible way. If, honestly, if you're Amelia Hart, I she would probably disagree. But the idea of going out in a blaze of glory. 
Yeah, seems more her. Probably seems more like something yeah. she'd want to do than yeah, yeah, absolutely. Teller in New Jersey, I think so as well. Um, she also could have like if you know maybe she didn't come back to the states, maybe she went somewhere else and she just had really fun adventures and was laughing her butt off every time she turned on the news and she saw that someone was being accused of being Amelia Earhart again. Yeah, so I'm gonna hope for that. Yeah, let's hope for that. Her poor husband. Yeah, yeah, he did not have a really. I didn't do much research into him, but. He did not really have a good go of it. And then he spent like all of this money and time trying to find her at like after like as, as you would, obviously. Oh, okay. And well, then, husband. Yeah. Not great. All not right. Great. But that's well, that's the, Amelia uh, Earhart. That's the Amelia Earhart legend. Okay. Kind of like, kind of like D.B. Cooper, but I, I think I like this one a little bit more. I think I like this legend a bit more than D.B. Cooper. I mean, she's a like more likable person than D.B. Cooper. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah he was just a terrorist. <laughs> He's definitely, whichever way you cut it. Um, but I also but think it's. I, also I like think the idea that DB Cooper survived. Yeah, more probably more likely that he yeah. survived than Amelia Earhart. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, good legend though. Yeah, it is a good legend, and that's what we're here for. Oh, she also. So this is a little bit of a yeah. side note. I didn't put it in my notes because it didn't seem important. But while she was an editor at Cosmopolitan, she had a clothing line designed, not like in at the same time, not yeah. in connection with each other. Okay, but it was called AE. Just because that was her nickname. She just went by AE, and I was like, wait a minute. She's kind of badass. Yeah, she was really cool. She was, like, sewing her own clothes and stuff. She was a seamstress. She did everything. She was just a cool lady. Yeah. Lots of skills, and just, like, held, held a leather all the time. Not your average, like, 1920s, 30s housewife. No, she she was not about that. Did she have any children? Not that I saw. Oh. But I didn't really dig into her family life. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Not really relevant to what no, we're talking about. No. Which brings us very much to what I'm talking about. Because I did not dig into her family life at all, which is Princess Diana. Yeah. And now I actually went back and forth on whether to do Princess Diana or the Black Dahlia mm. or Marilyn Monroe. Because well, you could just do Jack the Ripper if you wanted to do. Yeah, or Marilyn Dahlia. Monroe. Yeah, because I, I was going to do one of the like the 27 Club. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then those are all a bit dour. Well, yeah. And I actually asked. I just did a poll on the History Through House Instagram. Oh, really? And said, who should I do? Of course, uh, yeah. And Princess Diana yeah. was the result. So Princess Diana is who I'm doing. I'm very excited because I, she died in 19, 1996, right? Yeah. So I was three when she Which died. Which is actually one of the things that prompted me to do it because I was a little concerned. Because this is, like, I think, the most recent one we've done. Like, most Oh, yeah. Current, by, by, like, several decades. Especially because yes. the most recent up until 30 seconds ago was Amelia Earhart. Yes. So I'm a little aware that there's a lot of people involved in this who are still very much alive and still very much suffering because of this. Yeah. So that leaves me with, I'm going to try. Also, I'm a, I'm actually quite a big monarchist supporter. Mm. So I'm going to try and do this in a very, like, non-conspiracy theory way mm -hmm. which considering it's kind of one of the biggest most modern conspiracy theories mm. i don't know how easy it's going to be i'm also going to make no comment on my feelings of the relationship and her role as a princess i do think that in our in my badass women <laughs> one i will probably do uh what she did for charities and her philanthropic yeah uh her philanthropic things. Um, I'm not going to go into any of this now. I'm going to tell you a bit about her. And then I'm just going to kind of go through the mysterious deaths associated with her, including mm -hmm. her own. Okay. Princess Diana. Diana Frances Spencer was born on July 1st, 1961. Oh, just almost entirely my sources come from Wikipedia. Mm. 
because Wikipedia has so many articles on every aspect of her life. Yeah. I didn't realize she must be one of the most recorded people. Oh, she would have had to have been. I did pull some of it from newspaper reports and things like that, but primarily. Yeah. This is a Wikipedia one. (laughs) Um, She was born at Park House in Sandringham. She was the fourth of five children uh, of John Spencer, who is Viscount Althrop, and Frances Spencer, who is Viscountess Althrop. Uh, The Spence family had been closely allied with the British royal family for several generations. What's a Viscount? It is a step above Duke and Lord. It's the second highest ranking in the British nobility after basically King, Queen, Prince. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so if you're not royalty, yeah, basically your next step down is Viscount. Okay. Is that a title that you can only get through birth or to be appointed by by a king and queen? Or I, as far as I'm aware, I cannot think in his, in my history, uh-huh. uh, is in like modern history, mm-hmm. that there's ever been a Viscount created. Okay, so it's just heritage. This is, as far as I'm aware, just heritage. Okay. Um, growing up, I knew a family... Um, where one of the children is now a Viscount. Oh my God. <laughs> and leave. is awesome. He's <laughs> very, very cool. Totally intimidating because he was a couple of years older than me uh-huh. and just way cooler than me. And <laughs> 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 way, way badly behaved compared to me. <laughs> but uh, it's a really rare thing. Okay. So Diana's grandmothers, this is like her, Cynthia Spencer, Countess Spencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was Countess Spencer, Ruth Roche, who was the Baroness Fermoy, had both served in ladies-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Okay, so they're very... So these guys have got, like, so many royal connections. So much political pull. This was not, like, when William met Catherine at university. These were... Yeah, these were families that knew families that knew families. Yeah. Uh, Spencers were hoping for a boy, and she was a girl, so it took them a while to even bother naming her. (laughs) <laughs> had they only had girls up until that point or like you know, were they, did they just want to have a son because that's so i do know that the current viscount althrop is a uh, is charles uh-huh. another charles who is a spent a uh, charles spencer and i think he was older than her oh okay in which case i don't really maybe there's this thing in england where you have an heir and a spare uh-huh which i know certainly princess diana has two older sisters uh-huh but I think Charles was older than her too. Oh, okay. But maybe he wasn't. Okay. So she was named after another Lady Diana Spencer, who a many times great aunt, who was also at one point a prospective Princess of Wales. No. Oh. She is quite famously known as being quite shy growing mm-hmm. up. Like, I mean, that's something that she kind of played into, and a lot of people would tell you about her is that she was quite shy. She wasn't super academically gifted. Um, but she was a good pianist. Uh, she loved to dance. Like one of the articles I read talked about how once she became Princess of Wales, she actually hired a dance teacher to come and uh, teach her dance lessons. Um, she wanted to be a ballerina, but she grew too tall. That was her original oh. goal in life. She is also the first member of royalty to have ever held a normal job. But she left school at 16. She then went to finishing school. But after that, she was a nanny to some children and a few other bits and pieces. So she actually had like yeah. a real job. Mm-hmm. She first met Charles when they was when she was 16. Okay. In 1997. He was actually She was 16 in 1997? 
1977. Okay, okay. That's my dyslexia. At that point, either he'd just broken up with or was still dating her older sister, Lady Sarah. They were guests at a country weekend during the summer of 1980 when he'd firmly broken up with her sister. <laughs> and that was when they started to actually rekindle, mm -hmm. have this relationship. So they kind of been on and off seeing each other for a while a little bit about this. But in 1980, the relationship progressed to the point that he invited her aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia for a week sailing weekend to Cowes. And that was followed by an invitation to Balmoral to meet his family in November of 1980. And this is when the press started to take notice, pick up. I mean, Charles was known as the Playboy Prince mm -hmm. because he had many women that they'd including her sister mm -hmm. who had been pegged as being his wife okay but this is when the press really i think saw uh and this is when the obsession with her began okay queen really liked her actually everyone really liked her to all intents and 6th of february 1981 he proposed okay the engagement was kept secret and but at 20 years old she became the princess of wales when she married the prince of wales on the 29th of july 1981 mm -hmm. at St. Paul's Cathedral, as it offered more seating than Westminster Abbey, which is normally where people get married when mm -hmm. the royals. The service was widely described as a fairy tale wedding and was watched by global television audiences of 750 million people. <sighs> right? That's a lot of people. At the altar, Diana inadvertently reversed the order of Charles's first names, saying Philip Charles mm -hmm. instead. She did also was the first bride in royal history to not say the word obey. Okay. Which good on her. Yep. And it was uh, left out on both their parts. And obviously that was something that everyone picked up on. Yeah, I feel the same way, Griffin. Obviously that was something that everyone picked up on in quite a, you know, oh, she didn't say it. <laughs> but neither did he. Neither did he. Uh, so get over it. <laughs> her dress at this point was valued at £9,000, and it had a 25-foot train. Oh, my God. Okay. If this story stopped here, yeah. it would be a Disney fairy tale. It sounds like it. Fortunately, it does not. <laughs> she has two children, William and Harry. Mm -hmm. She is not in a very happy marriage. Mm -hmm. And... First kind of glimmer of how unhappy this marriage was, certainly on her part, was when Barry Manneke, who was a bodyguard, got transferred from his role as a bodyguard of her for what was described as an inappropriate relationship between the two of them. Okay. Diana later spoke about being in love with him. Mm -hmm. He died in a road traffic accident in 1987, okay. leading to a conspiracy that his death was not an accident. Uh -huh. Diana certainly believed he'd been bumped off by the security services, and nothing has ever been proven. Well, it wouldn't have been. No. I read a little more into this. This is obviously not what we're here to talk about. No. Um, it was a 17-year-old girl that was in the car. He was on a motorbike, and a 17-year-old girl was in the car that he got hit. Okay. I will say that there's a lot of like hearing hoof prints thinking zebras in mm, this yeah. where it's like a lot of what this is, is it's, there are unfortunately, tragically people don't do die in motorbike accidents <laughs> more often than in cars. Uh, very regularly. Yeah. Um, Did the he girl had, die in the accident. No, as well? the girl survived. Okay. She has said many times that she does not think she's responsible for the death. 
okay his death um interesting and but she was 17 he was on the back of a friend's bike oh and i he the guy that was riding the bike i think survived okay as well was he also part of the security detail so i was trying to figure this out what it looks like is it was just a random night out and he just got on the back of a friend's bike oh and there was just an accident okay honestly from my pitiful amount of research that was where yeah my conclusion has come yeah. to but since we're talking about a traffic accident uh-huh. associated with someone that uh-huh. princess diana was in a relationship with yeah it's worth noting yeah this was also I mean, only a few years after they got married. Yeah. And she herself had said that at some point with Prince William, she'd thrown herself down the stairs because she was so unhappy when she was pregnant with Prince William. Oh, wow. Like she was, I mean, I'm not going to go into it Mm. because honestly, I think, I don't think there was a bad guy in this situation. I just think it was a horrific situation for two people to be in. One just happens to have been much more naive, I think, Mm. going into it than the other. Mm. On the 20th of December, my birthday, Buckingham Palace announced that the Queen had sent letters to Prince and Princess of Wales advising them to divorce. This was in 1996. At this point, they had already been separated Mm -hmm. for three or four years. Okay. So they were the first senior royals to ever get divorced. That seems like a pretty big deal. Pretty much. Um, I think, no, I think that's pretty much it. They were the first. So I think everyone just assumed they'd say separated. Yeah, instead of actually going through with the... Because, honestly, he was going to be king, so that brought up a whole load of questions as to would she still be a princess, what would be her. Mm. And it was, and it still is a big issue as to what titles and who should inherit. And there's a lot of questions associated with, her son, with it. Spe- with their son specifically, or? Yeah, because even when she, he married Camilla, who was obviously the person that he, one of the people he was reportedly having an affair with, there was a lot of question as to whether she could ever hold her old title. Okay. Uh, I mean. Does she now? Yeah, Duchess. Okay. She's a Duchess. Really weird. There is, uh, I think public opinion has now swayed, which is that if he becomes king, Uh I don't think the public would be too much in arms if she became queen. Oh, okay. Although that was a big thing at the beginning, was that if he remarried, she would never take the title of queen. I think they both said out loud that that would be what would happen. Hmm, Okay. I think public opinion has definitely changed throughout the years. because. The propaganda force of the royals is is good, hefty, <laughs> and it's not got any yeah. It's been real opposition. It's been, over it's been a decade. yeah. It's been a long time, yeah. and also because I think that more and more as divorce does become more normal, people realize that this is never a one sided villain, mm. or very rarely is it a yeah. villainous right, right, right thing. Mm-hmm. Especially in this. Yeah. At least in this situation. In this situation, anyway. So Charles agreed to the formal divorce with a written written statement. In February in February 1996, the princess announced her agreement after negotiations with the prince and representatives of the queen, and she really started off on great terms because she announced the divorce agreement, not letting the royals announce the agreement and terms. So that really was a great way of her solidifying the fact that she was no longer playing by mm-hmm. the firm's rules. All right, let's really quick just talk about how awesome she was in her philanthropy efforts because you can't talk about Diana and not talk about the whole load of good she brought to the world. She obviously was very into HIV. Into HIV. Um, She was obviously very involved. Involved with treatment, education, education, propaganda, uh, propaganda again. Like she would shake people who hands with who had HIV. This was in the middle of 
the epidemic. The epidemic, yeah. where no one really knew what it was, and she openly opened her arms to these people uh-huh. and invited them in. She was also very tough on landmines, which I didn't really get into, but like apparently land- that was a problem, and one of the reasons why that she could have been bumped off is because she was trying to stop the use of landmines in Britain was where were they using, using a lot them of in, landmines? Like in, in conflict or in yeah. Britain? In conflict. Okay. I mean, they are not my favorite ideas of things. No, they're pretty horrific. Yeah. And and they once they're down, they kill a lot of people that they weren't meant to. Oh, yeah. She also uh, did a lot for cancer research, leprosy, young homeless people. Um, obviously, one of my big things is mental health. Mm-hmm. And she was a staunch and longtime supporter of many charities that social that focused on social and mental health, which at that time point was revolutionary. Oh yeah, yeah. And she also talked about mental health. She suffered from bulimia. She tried to commit suicide. She actually talked openly about those issues and kind of brought them out into the public as being something that was okay mm-hmm. to talk about mm-hmm. and that needed to be addressed. Did anyone see that as like? Weakness in the monarchy. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And and Charles still has never opened up really about his, and the queen has never opened up about their feelings on things. About what she, about how she was? No, I'm just or... saying like Charles has never really opened up and been like, oh, you mean like his, I had a really tough time Like his feelings week. in yeah. general. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. So she, one of the big things that she did was a charity called Turning Point, which actually both her sons are still involved with now. It was originally founded in 1964 to help and support those affected by drug and alcohol misuse and with mental health problems. She became their patron in 1987, um, so right after, like, right after the marriage, a few mm. years after the marriage, and visited on a very regular basis. And this is one of her quotes. It takes professionalism to convince a doubting public that it should accept back into its mist many of those diagnosed as psychotics, neurotics, and other sufferers who Victorian communities decided should be kept out of sight in the safety of mental institutes. Despite the protocol problems of traveling to a Muslim country, she made the trip to Pakistan later in the year also to visit rehabilitation centers. She was really committed to working against drug abuse. Mm -hmm. And this idea that mental illness, and I mean, we've talked about this before, Mm. mental illness is something that can be cured and people can be productive members of society, but also even if it can't be quote-unquote cured, That doesn't mean that that's a lost cause. Yeah, that, or that someone mm-hmm. should just be shut away. And yeah. So, anyway, after her 1996 divorce, Diana retained the double apartment on the north side of Kensington Palace, and she actually still worked a lot out of there. So, even though it was in many ways portrayed as this huge rift, and I'm sure there was, she was still uh, permitted to use the state apartments at James St James's Palace. She was still allowed to have access to her jewelry, and allowed to use the air transport of the British royal family and government. Okay. So I think the royals realized that she had a power. Great, yeah. That they needed to figure out how to harness her. Yeah, greater than the title. Yeah, harness her for good, not evil. Yeah. Um, but they, obviously it didn't really get much. Had she already for, had her kids. She had already obviously yeah. already had both of her sons at Yeah, this point. her sons were born in 83 and 86. Okay. Seven, six, seven. So Harry's like, about okay. my age. And William's a couple of years older than me. Gotcha. Okay. She apparently had asked Lord Spencer, her brother, to go and live at Althrop, which is their big estate, and he refused. Oh. So, <laughs> you know, she, I mean, he, he basically said he married into them. Deal with it. Suck it up. Yeah. Uh. Um, 
And okay, so where we're at in 1996 is that she has still got a lot of the trappings of the British royalty. She's been obviously the press darling because she is using her connections for good, generally, mm-hmm. not evil. And she is putting herself out there a lot when it comes to her charities and things. Mm-hmm. She does retire, try and retire from public life a couple of times, but it doesn't take either way. Either no. Time. Okay. Okay. So after her divorce, she started dating, well, kind of during the separation mm-hmm. um, into her divorce, she started dating a gentleman named Hasnat Khan. Hasnat Khan. He was a British Pakistani heart surgeon and she called him the love of her life. And many of her closest friends said that that was to her. He was everything. And in May 1996, she actually visited Pakistan and visited his family. And they were definitely looking at the rumor has it is that she was looking about moving to Pakistan mm-hmm. and being with him and and. The relationship lasted about two years, and there were differing accounts as to who ended it and why. They, uh, she is said to have spoken like heartbroken that he had ended it, mm-hmm. but according to Khan's testimonial at the inquest of her death, it was actually Diana that ended it. Okay. Burrell also uh, Paul Burrell. Do you know who Paul Burrell is? Mm-hmm. Okay, so he was uh, her personal secretary. Basically with her through this entire thing. Okay. Like one of her closest, dearest friends. And then a few years after her death, like t- early 2000s, he wrote a couple of books and kind of, I don't know, he said a lot of stuff that people think he should perhaps have kept uh-huh. as in strict confidence. Apparently one of the major reasons was that he was Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, that this relationship may have ended. Diana's mother would have almost certainly yeah. not have approved of this. Right. Um, he kept very quiet for a while but he actually did did start speaking out like 11 years after his her death he has said that he she really enjoyed the muslim culture there uh she liked how eccentric and his family were Mm -hmm. that she was a normal wonderful person with great qualities um and that she did great work all over the world not just for the uk but for everybody Mm -hmm. and he really wants people to remember her for that that not for her affairs okay uh he also says he's not going to talk any more detail about it that's like he has nothing but full memories she was a wonderful person like he's done obviously she that wasn't her only affair very famously it was james hewitt that she was having an affair with i think at the time of separation who was a cavalry officer okay it's it's really important to remember these gentlemen are still alive Mm -hmm. okay yeah and and this heart surgeon was also Muslim, was the great love of her life, and is still alive. Uh, he actually also said, if I had said things about her before 1997, she could have responded to them. But since she is not here, it would be very unfair to me for me to make any comments about her. Okay. He just seems like a really stand-up dude. Yeah. Within a month after this breakup, she began a relationship with Dodie Fired, who is the son of Muhammad al-Fayed, who's this incredibly wealthy Egyptian billionaire who lives in London. He owns Harrods. Okay. Um, and, or he used to own Harrods. I guess she needed someone to go on summer holiday. And because her security detail was getting more difficult because she was no longer really a royal and it was getting a little more difficult to figure out where to go, uh, Muhammad al-Fayed 
offered up his island or his no uh, he had a compound in the south of france where he had his own personal large security detail mm-hmm. so that then she'd have plenty of protection without having to put it on the british taxpayer so she took herself and her sons off to this compound and met dodio fired and in July of 1997, Fayed became romantically involved with Diana. This was only re- like a month or two after he'd become engaged to another woman called Kelly Fisher. And they'd bought a house together in Malibu. And Fisher subsequently came that Fayed had jilted her for Diana and announced she was filing for a breach of contract suit against him, claiming that he had led her emotionally all the way up to the altar and abandoned her when they were almost there. He threw her love away callously with no regard for her whatsoever. She dropped the lawsuit sh- shortly after he died. Okay. Okay, so death. Yep. So they haven't been together very long at this point. Really, like, uh, they became romantically involved in July of 1997, and she died on August 31st, 1997. Mm-hmm. So maybe six, eight weeks of romance. Mm-hmm. So what had happened was... They had they were in Paris and okay, actually I'm gonna restart that. Okay, so there's a lot of controversy surrounding her death, mm-hmm. obviously. I think do you know the basics of it? No. I'll get into more detail. She <laughs> no. died in a tunnel in Paris in okay. a car accident. Yeah. Um, I knew she died in a car accident. I didn't I don't think I knew the location. Yeah. Um it was such a big deal that in two thousand and four the British Metropolitan Police actually set up a whole investigation into it. They mm-hmm. did like a huge, I think it's a 62 page document on the death. Mm. And generally they found that obviously they found that there was no conspiracy there and it pretty much ran out the way that it looked on paper, but we're going to go into what happened. So the investigation was initially confined to the premise of an alleged conspiracy, which was mainly that Dodi fire, uh, Mohammed Al fired, Dodie Fired's father kept saying that that Dodie was about to propose, that Diana was pregnant with his baby, on mm. all of these reasons of why she was going to get knocked off. The other one is that she had a few threats about landmines from like mysterious British voices mm. and saying that if she didn't drop her thing on landmines, she was going to get knocked off too. Okay. So those are the two major reasons as to why they think she would have been mm-hmm. killed. The British police carried out the investigation with the Parisian police and they the cost of the inquiry actually exceeded 12.5 million with the in- coroner's inquest alone at 4.5 million just to give you an idea of how yeah. seriously these in- these i mean these conspiracy theories in england are taken yeah very very seriously so that's why i'm kind of going to tell you a bit about them but all right diane and fayed arrived at the ritz in the late afternoon in paris she went to the salon for a hair appointment he went to a jeweler because rumor has it is he was planning on proposing that night. Mm-hmm. Now, I have found very little evidence that this was actually the case versus just one of those things that came up to strengthen the idea that their relationship was serious enough that they would want to bump them off. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, it, to me, it seems even, it, to me, it seems bizarre that just eight weeks after he, I mean, yeah. that, that things operate differently. Mm-hmm. But eight weeks after he'd broken off his engagement with a woman in California, yeah. he was going to get married to the Princess of Wales. Mm. So they he, apparently it was very important to Dodie that they found a lovely restaurant. So they tried to eat dinner at two different restaurants before the incessant hounding of the paparazzi 
just got too much, mm-hmm. and they decided to devise a plan to get away. The couple's driver and bodyguards would make a big show out front, appearing to get in the caravan of Mercedes sedans that were ready to take them away. Meanwhile, the princess and Fayed would slip out the back in a borrowed car driven by a hotel security officer. This is what happens next, according to the official report. The driver, it turned out, was drunk. Uh, Henry Paul was the deputy head of the security at Hotel Ritz-Paris and driver of the Mercedes that they were in on the night of the crash. First responders think, first responders think he died on in, impact, and the official story is that he was drunk behind the wheel and lost control of the car. He did probably have a lot to drink that night. He was also on antidepressants. However, he is on camera acting coherent and not visibly intoxicated right before the accident okay. as he leaves it. The detractors from the official story also say the amount he drank was negligible, given that he was a seasoned alcoholic. <laughs> not really sure that no. that is like a... What are the toxicology? Did he die in the, in the accident? Yes. Did, I'm assuming there's a toxicology yes. report. Okay. And he was found to be like three times over the limit. Okay. Which limit? Uh, it was three times over the American limit and double the Paris limit, British limit or something. Okay. He was definitely so, not sober sober enough to be driving mm-hmm. to important people while they were getting chased. Mm-hmm. So as the couple spread off, the photographers out front got tipped off about the fact that they were actually leaving in a different car and they quickly tried to catch up mostly on motorcycles. Their drivers darted in and out of the traffic. Photographers were chasing them on motorcycles? Yes. Okay. And they wrecked spectacularly inside the Pointe de la Maillard tunnel near the Eiffel Tower. It, this happens at 12.23 a.m. And they collide with a concrete pillar. Dodie is killed instantly. Mm-hmm. And Diana, as is, as is the driver, and uh, Diana is extracted from the car using an electric chainsaw and rushed to a hospital. During the drive to the hospital, her heart stops, but she is revived using CPR and a defibrillator. Okay. At the hospital, Diana undergoes surgery, but is pronounced dead at 4 a.m. The only survivor of the crash is, in fact, the bodyguard that was appointed to them for the drive for the night, mm-hmm. um, as he was the only one that was determined to be wearing a seatbelt. Okay. Apparently, Diana was a habitual seatbelt wearer, and it's very unusual that she wasn't wearing a seatbelt that night. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, actually, for Trevor Reese Jones to be wearing a seatbelt as a security officer was considered also wrong because they're not they're supposed oh, to be able was... to get out quickly. Yeah. Um, and he should have made sure that she was wearing a seatbelt. Yes. Now we're going to come to some of the reasons why. Uh, let me be clear. I do pretty much go with the yeah the prescribed thing, which was they were driving. They had a drunk driver. They were being chased by paparazzi. Mm-hmm. And he lost control um, of a car. And unfortunately, they died. Okay. All 17 CCTV cameras along their route were turned off or not working at all. Okay. So consequently, no footage was captured from when they left the Ritz to the crash. Okay. They also took a weird route that wouldn't have been the most direct route, but again, not... Well, if he was drunk or if he was, or if they were trying, trying to, to... evade the yeah. paparazzi, not super weird. It is revealed that actually a lot of different agencies, including the NSA at this point, were tracking all her movements and bugging all her phone calls. Probably not unusual. So again, but still, like, obviously she was, they saw her as a threat or a worry in some way. One of the biggest things are that in the months leading up to her death, Diana sent out a letter to two different people. One of them was to Paul Burrell. Yeah, her PA. Yes, and it says... I am sitting here at my desk today in October 
I am trying someone or and encouraging me to stay and keep my head held high. This particular phase in my life is the most dangerous. My husband is practicing or is planning an accident in my car, brake failure and serious head injury in order to make the people uh the in order to make the path clear for him to marry Tiggy, who by the way was the boy's nanny, and I don't know that there was ever really an understanding that they were having an affair. Mm-hmm. Camilla is nothing but a decoy. So here we are. So she sent out two letters basically saying that she thought she would be Who did she send the second one to? So Lord Mitchum. Who's that? I don't know. Her solicitor. Oh. Um apparently Paul Burrell, obviously, as I said, is that how the letter published was, stuff. Was that how yeah. the letter was released? Yeah. Whereas Lord Mitchum has uh, only ever served, passed his letter over to the police chief and left it there. Okay. It's never been made public. There are a few people that think that Paul Burrell may have known how to mimic her handwriting because mm. he was her personal secretary and written it himself to basically further the narrative. Monarchists. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when the ambulance finally did leave the scene of the crash and made its way to its hospital, it only traveled at a pedestrian pace of 12 miles an hour. What? It was questioned by investigators, research, medical, and emergency services alike. Everybody doesn't understand why it traveled at 12 miles an hour. Were they, do they slow down if they're doing CPR? And apparently that's what they said, is that the ambulance had high-tech medical equipment on board, and it was essentially a mobile theater room to allow the emergency team to begin treatment as soon as the patient was inside the ambulance. And to travel hot at uh, high speed would have put this to work danger work at in danger i did read somewhere that the cpr that she ref- like was actually internal heart oh, so they had her cut open they had a cu- I, I read that somewhere so okay. obviously you can think if you're in an ambulance it took them forever to get to her uh-huh which like half like 20 minutes uh-huh but then she was in a tunnel in paris i mean there's a lot of stuff here that could have been done differently and she could have lived uh-huh. that's not Doubt, I don't yeah, that's think. Yeah, not really an argument. There's about 50 points in this night where she could have lived, mm-hmm. but I don't know that that means that... Right, that, that she was, was assassinated. That she was assassinated. Okay, the mysterious white Fiat Uno is apparently the smoking gun of the conspiracy. Fiat? Fiat. Okay, I said Fiat, but you're talking about the car. Yes, I'm talking about the car. Its presence had been denied at first, but there were paint markings on the remains of the Mercedes, shattered pieces of red tail-like glass matching a Fiat Uno that were recovered at the entrance of the tunnel. And some people have said basically that they saw this Fiat Uno collide into the Mercedes and cause the crash. Suspicions grew even more when the car was never officially located despite a national search. There was an MI-16 agent called James Anderson, Anderson and who officially at least committed suicide several years following Diana's death. He owned a white Fiat Uno that had officially been ruled out as the one involved in it in the crash. Um, Was his ever recovered? Yes. Or did he he still have it, I guess, is the question. They said his was too run down to have been on the road that night, I think. Okay. I mean, you know, Mohammed Al-Fayed absolutely believes that... She was assassinated. It was... The Mercedes was, uh, the, the Fiat was being driven by an MI6 agent, okay. 16 agent, MI6 agent. M16. MI6. <laughs> uh, MI6 <whatever>. agent <laughs> and driven into the thing. Um, and, uh, okay. So there's no way to determine the, there's no way to determine whether this is all true because he was found dead in 2000. 
His death was ruled a suicide, but when it was found, he apparently had two bullet wounds in his head. Others have suggested his body was found decapitated in a burnt-out car. Oh. Where, how so, was he found? I mean, there's one official. I mean, there's one way that he was found. Couldn't dead. figure that one out. Okay. It seems to me that you can't shoot yourself twice in the head. Definitely not. And you certainly can't decapitate yourself and set your own car alight. So, yeah. yeah. Um. So this is like that's the one bit that people are like, okay, explain, please. So that's where we're at. Nine photographers following Dodie and uh, Dodie and Diana's death in 1970, uh, 1997 were charged with manslaughter. Okay. France's highest court actually dropped their charges in 2002. Okay. Three photographers who took pictures of the aftermath of the crash were tried for invasion of privacy for taking pictures of someone, you know. They were also acquitted in 2002. Okay. The Queen was sadly asleep at Balmoral Castle in Scotland when she was awoken by one of her aides in the middle of the night. She wrapped herself up in an old-fashioned dressing gown to meet her son in the corridor. He informed her that Princess Diana and her lover at the time had gotten involved in a horrific car accident in Paris. All they knew that fire was reported dead, but Diana had survived. As Prince Charles took more calls to get updates, the Queen ordered her staff to make a pot of tea, but everyone in the castle was too anxious to drink it, so the tea just sat on the table and got cold. Initially, the Queen was told that Diana had walked away unscathed, yet when she found out that the Princess Diana short, died a short term later, Elizabeth second watched her son composure broke as he just broke down into a puddle of tears. Mm-hmm. A raw emotion that the public never saw. Right. Well, no. No. There, I think, I think that the Queen had more respect from Diana than maybe people initially thought at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's certainly come out throughout the years that maybe she had a lot more kind of sympathy and respect for what she was going through than was publicized. Mm-hmm. Um, and saw her death as a terrible waste. Prince William and Harry um, have said that the death of their mother caused severe depression. Um, William was 15 when she died. Harry was 12. Mm-hmm. They Their last phone call um, was right before she went out for dinner. Uh, and apparently they were busy playing with their cousins at Balmoral. Wow. And they got her off the phone really quickly. And William says it's become one of the greatest regrets of his life. Jesus. So... That was the death of Princess Diana and Dodie Fired. Legendary. It is a legendary death. I personally... I think it was just uh, an accident. Yeah. my One thing is that 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 dude in the white fear, you know. Like, yeah. There's a lot of death around. I mean, that's a lot of car accidents in one person's <laughs> lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it also seems like if you were professionally... I mean, there Taking are, people out, you'd, you might select a different method. Yeah. Which is a bit callous to say, but... No, well, so, okay, so there are a lot more conspiracy theories behind Mm -hmm. it. One of them is that everyone reports seeing a big flashing light in the tunnel, which apparently they had already posited as a way to kill somebody else, like, in a, is to, as someone goes into a tunnel, to flash a strobe so that the driver of the car crashes. Oh, just crash, okay. Um, So that was actually something that MI6 had posited, I guess, as a way to assassinate someone. Mm-hmm. And someone says that they saw this white flashing strobe light as they went into the tunnel. Also, um, but there were paparazzi taking photos, so that was, of yeah. course, going to create a strobing light effect yeah. anyway. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of theories. I'm sure. Like, but realistically, I think it was just a horrific chain of events mm. from top to bottom. Yeah. From the day that she said yes to that marriage <sighs> proposal. My God, yeah. Onwards. What a miserable... 
five years. I know. Well, what it was, she said yes in 1980 and she died in 17 years of pretty much. And then just constantly being in the eye of the public the Mm -hmm. whole time as well. So I really do like to think that it was a bright spark at the end (sighs) of her life. Maybe this relationship. Um, But you know, you mean the one with Dodie, not with the heart surgeon. No, I mean the heart surgeon. Mm. I don't know. In my romantic mind, Dodie was just a fling and they'd have got back together the heart surgeon. She'd have lived happily ever after. Yeah. With the nice man who didn't sell her out to the press. Yeah. So we can anyway. only hope. Maybe in another universe. So yeah, that was fun. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, thank my Instagram you followers. Miserable monarchist. Thank my Instagram followers. I think next week we should do something aeronautical. Let's do something. Okay. I want the Lindbergh. Not Lindenberg, the other one, the Hindenburg. The, you want the Hindenburg? I want the flamey blimp. Okay. You take the flaming blimp. Okay. I might change my mind. <laughs> okay. If you do, let me know, because that was what I was thinking. Aha. Aha. All right. So you take that. Cool. And I might do, if you do Hindenburg, I might do Limba, baby. Is that too... F- oh, God. Isn't that super depressing? No, oh, I no, that's the one. No that's answer. Not, that's not the one that didn't... That, that one didn't fall out of a window. That was, that, that was a different... No, movie. that is the one that came out of a window. Oh, okay. God, you spot the ending. All right. <laughs> Lovely speaking to you all. <laughs> Cut that out. Uh, all right. Thanks for thanks for listening. Give us give us some ratings if you like us. Subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff. Follow us on the Instagram at Legendary Tales Pod. I promise we'll update it soon. Um. Yeah. We'll see right. you guys next week. Bye. Bye.